remember Desposito, author, I guess Louis Fonsi, right? Louis Fonsi, coming to Moscow uh, to a big um, venue of 7K or 8K capacity and selling around 800 tickets. So I was like, okay. Wow. It's all you need to know about streaming versus ticket sales, right? Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our co-host, Rutger, very, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are his or hers alone, and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company he or she works for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. At How Music Charts, we try to showcase those pushing the edge of music and data. And today we talk with Moscow-based concert promoter and talent agent, Sophie Chivanova. Chivanova is currently a consultant for Korean concert promotions company, My Music Taste, where she was formerly the head of Europe and the Commonwealth of Independent States. Founded in 2013 with offices in Korea, Los Angeles, and Moscow, My Music Taste has organized concerts of artists such as GOT7, Monsta X, Kalani, The XX, and many more in over 30 different countries around the world, all based on fan requests. Graduating from the National University of Kyiv with a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science, the data-driven Chivanova has also co-founded and grew two live music companies operating in Russia and wider Europe, giving her more than eight years of experience in the European and Asian markets. She's currently building her own company, which we are excited to hear more about. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Sophie Chivanova. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hello, Jason. Thank you for inviting me here. Yeah, I've been a huge fan of, of your podcast, actually, as like, um, yeah, I'm a user of Chartmetric uh, since 2017, I guess. Love your data, guys. Yeah. Hello. Hello from Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello from New York. And thanks for the kind words, uh, Sophie. Um, You're how was How was uh, coronavirus life in Moscow for you currently? Um, I mean, I think it's it's like the, 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 the main thing to mention. It's like very healthy, you know, healthy lifestyle and very boring, like boring lifestyle because we are as, as concert people, we are pretty much used to, to be on the tour, on the road all the time. But right now there is no road, no planes, no buses, you know, no crazy production tasks to, to actually accomplish. Um, like no arenas to be built in like eight hours, something like that. No issues. So nothing much is happening in music industry. And it's the same for Russia. It's same in Moscow. It's same in LA, I guess, in New York. And... Thanks to our government, I believe at least we have cinemas open and museums open. So we are, we've been given a chance to at least attend some, you know, uh, kind of sample of normal life. Yeah. And awaiting for the second wave to, to come or not to come. We are just, you know, <laughs> just, just uh, somewhere in the very center of perfect uh, knowing nothing about the current situation. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, have so with the movie theaters and the art galleries have has that have people has the public been um, fairly quick to kind of go back to normal life at least in terms of those two areas of life, or has that kind of been a slow kind of drip into normalcy again? 
It's a great question. Actually, it really depends on the audience. So if we are talking about those a little bit older generation, like, you know, like 45 plus, 50 plus, those going to be very cautious about like returning to museums, like exhibitions, uh, concerts, whatever, like even even those like outdoor uh, events. Uh, but if we are talking about younger generation, definitely people are so happy to, you know, put a mask on, mm-hmm. just uh, bring a liter of sanitizer and just go cinema. Just, just <laughs> you know, 50% of the capacity, it's fine. Like 30%, yeah. it's fine. It's just like, yeah. give us something. So yeah. people are really like trying to to keep up with the with the cultural life, at least those youngest, y- younger generations, yeah, like youngsters. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's still it's still not that crowded as it could be, definitely. But parks are crowded. Like, you know, wherever people think they are a little bit more safe, everyone's there. Like parks, outdoor small festivals, like niche boutique festivals. Super yeah. many people. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we're going to get more into kind of what your forecast and vision into the, the future of live music. Uh, yeah. But I, I wanted to first get into kind of your kind of beginnings in the music industry. So you were already working when we were doing our research in live music while you were still attending university. So just kind of curious with having a a computer science kind of program that you were going through at the time at your university, what made you decide to go into kind of entertainment at all? It's just sometimes you just know that it meant to be this way. I mean, I grew up with music. I grew up with uh, vinyls of Black Sabbath and 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 Pink Floyd and The Doors, you know, since I've been like four years old or something like that. And then I I, I just knew that music gonna gonna follow me throughout life. And then I was definitely preparing myself for math, like, you know, big achievements, like something prominent in the science field. But, um, you know, like the firm, like McKinsey or something like that. But then just purely a matter of a chance given. And like that passion for music led me to, you know, to be a helper for a few concerts. And then it was quite a U-turn on all my future plans, like for life. But I was just telling myself, okay, Sophie, you're going to try it out, you know, like one year, two years, and you're going to go back to your like bank plans or something like that, or investment banking or something like that. Um, it never happened, you know, it's been, it's been like close to 10 years, I guess, never happened, never back. And even now with no shows and, and kind of, you know, future being uncertain. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to stay here. You're full in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as most of our current listeners are based in the States, I thought we could start out by also better understanding from a more general perspective what the European and Asian live music markets were like, since that's a a majority of your experience, Um, but pre-coronavirus. So we can at least just understand some of the similarities and differences uh, kind of inherent between the regions, um, because for me, I can definitely claim some some ignorance there. So if you could just maybe kind of tell us what some of those things were like, uh, I think that'd be really helpful for a lot of the listeners. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, live music is live music everywhere, right? So stadium shows are no different in New York, London, like Seoul, Hong Kong, you you name it, Moscow. Same with club shows. So if we're talking about live music market, um, it's what are the components of a live music market definition, right? It's probably market, artist, 
like venue place, concert place, and then promoter, and then fans, which is demand, right? So uh, if we split it in like small topics, markets, Europe, it's um, there are many, many countries, many cities. It's a huge market for both local and foreign artists, um, whether it be um, Asian uh, artists, like Western artists, American artists, like CIS artists, you name it. And Asian markets, definitely there is like less target cities for foreign artists, I would say. So local market is definitely, it's same. In America, it's um, for American artists. In Europe, in each country, in those many countries, right? There is a huge market with many cities for those local stores. Um, And yeah, so Europe, it's very open for all the artists from all over the world. Uh, I mean, yeah, definitely... um, probably American artists are more trending in, let's say, um, UK or in uh, Germany um, and less in Russia. Uh, like, it's it's language barrier. It's like many, many competence of that story. Um, Asian markets, um, if we are talking about, um, let's say, I experienced uh, Southeast Asian markets and uh, Korean, definitely. Um, in Korea, you really need to to, to think carefully uh, which foreign artists to bring in because um, there are many, many, many difficulties when you pick in one. And then um, foreign artists for both Europe and Asia, you, you really need to be very careful about tastes and genres. Um, and when I was in MMT, uh, I tried to book or advise on many foreign acts like Western artists and so on. And we've been thinking like super many names. Um, and um, it was really tricky to cater to Korean taste. Let's say um, with a boy band, Why Don't We? We, we brought Why Don't We in Seoul. Uh, we were the first promoter to, to do so, I guess. And at, at that time, these boys were doing like big club shows in Europe, I, I think, like up to 3K capacity or like 4K capacity. In Korea, that was like 700 tickets mm-hmm. or like 800 tickets. And it's a, it's a, it's a huge boy band, yeah. uh, but, but still. And let's say the XX, it, the, the, the band is huge, but it might not be that huge in Korea, but it's huge in Russia. And if you go to, let's say, um, Madrid in Spain, they're probably going to be even bigger. So it, it, it's always like you need to 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 think about what, what is better for you, for your revenue, for your budget, local artist versus foreign artist and how to pick those. And then venues, I mean, as a component of the definition of live music, venues like same everywhere. You know, there is like a standard for a stadium uh, to fit a stage, you know, and like 10K people, 30K people, 40K people and uh, fans definitely same. I mean, people, music lovers, uh, same everywhere. They are just waiting for the show to happen, these or that show, and to attend it. So basically, it's it. And uh, then promoter, I feel like the difference um, in um, between U.S. markets, the U.S. markets and uh, European markets, um, promoter. In the U.S., there's not a lot of indie names like mid-sized promoters and super small promoters. But like in each country in Europe, 
in Russia, in CIS, in Asia, we, we, we have plenty of indie names. So in each country, there is going to be an auction, um, like a betting game between like up to five names or 10 names, even sometimes like 10 promoters battling for one act, one name, you know? Yeah, that's it. Can you, I mean, I'm sure there's a million nuances between all the different markets with in these two vast regions that we're discussing right now, but could you give an example maybe of maybe in terms of tiers of venues, you know, ballrooms, bars, clubs, all the way up to stadiums, are there certain regions that seem to like prefer where the people seem to prefer like going to one over like another type of venue? I mean, I think I think for Europe, it's going to be it's going to be all same with with the US, like definitely like you, you, you name it, like any big concert city, say London, you, you're going to have plenty of, of, of like choices for you. You go pubs, bars, like small capacity, one, 100, 200, definitely. And then you jump to, to small clubs, like 700 or 500 capacity. And then definitely you go to these fancy two, three K and then you go small arena, big arena, and then stadium. I mean, it's, it's same in all Europe. In Russia, it's same. In Asia, it's a little bit different, I think, um, because touring, as is, um, hasn't been that massive in Asian markets, like probably 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Definitely uh, from what I witnessed in South Korea, in Seoul, in Busan, those are kind of major cities, right? Uh, people are not really choosing from many venues. So if you want to go to Seoul and, and play a show there with a capacity of like 500, 700 uh, people, you're probably going to choose between two venues only. And Seoul is a huge city, right? Like 20 mil plus people living there, working there, but only two, three, like well-equipped small venues of 700 tickets, like possible to be sold. And then you go to these kind of like semi exhibition hall or or just like something like a concert hall, concert venue, and then like showcase venue. Like you can place whatever you want there, like two, three K capacity, and then bam, it's a it's a Olympic Games like like something, like 10K capacity, and then it's a stadium. So it, there, there's not like many options for you to to choose from if we're talking about Asian markets, like specifically Korea. So for emerging artists in these markets, how would you, again, this is pre-coronavirus, assuming, uh, how would you go about scouting talent? What was that uh, process like for you at the time? Um, I mean, because I mostly worked uh, with K-pop, just to mention, yeah, 80% of, uh, of my work, um, volume of work when I was in MMT already in my music taste, these Korean based company, definitely I worked mostly with uh, K-pop. Um, it's a little bit different. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. But uh, if we are talking about foreign artists like Western artists um, um, for South Korea, booking for South Korea or for Russia, it's definitely a complex process of mixing your gut feeling with uh, data plus some um, inside information helps a lot, definitely. Actually, I'd say there are indeed like two ways of getting new names. It's kind of, you know, this or that act is getting a lot of support from the management or slash label so that there is a higher chance of it rising and conquering charts, right? 
or you see something happening on, say, chart metric, right? And you tell management a label, hey, we see some potential in this act. Let's go tour. Yeah, let's just like, let's let's go and experience, like, say, Moscow and Seoul or Busan. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why? And we are like, okay, there's some data on chart metric, you know, because people want your music. I mean, not only chart metric, definitely you go SoundCloud, you go whatever. You, you just like pick your information, like one by one. You, you, you just notice something somewhere. And, and from there you go. So, I mean, you're definitely, I think, uh, very inclusive of data in, in your process, I think. But kind of with a lot of the people you've worked with over the years, do you feel like data is still kind of like a thing that is becoming a a larger part of the conversation when it comes to booking talent and, and looking at venues and trying to estimate what ticket sales might be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you elaborate I, I, a little bit on that? I'd say that, um, you know, like five years ago when, when you, when you request, um, like, you know, dates from your, from your talent agent, from your booking agent, um, let's say like X artist, right. You're just like asking, okay, these artists, um, I won, I won this show in, in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg or in Korea. Um, and they're just like, okay, send me an offer right now. It can look like, um, I'm going to be asking these agents, hey, excuse me, can you please send me the data on your artist? So I'm going to take a look and I'm going to make an assumption how many tickets we can sell. So it's getting easier and easier because there's a lot of help and support from the management, from the label, from uh, booking agencies coming straight to you. So people sometimes approach you, like give you a ring and, Sophie, hey, I see these artists who's on my roster, like getting so much attention on like, like Spotify. Hey, watch me, see the numbers. It's great. Let's do a show. So actually in five years, it all switched to operating data before putting a show. Definitely. Before that, it was like, again, like eight years ago, five years ago, it was more of a, you know, kind of betting thing. Okay. What do you think about number of tickets to be sold? It's going to be 1,000 or is it going to be like 3,000? Okay, give me a fee offer. Now it's more about data. Now everyone wants to, to sell tickets and to be sure where fans are, where are like these fans clusters, where to go to sell tickets, to, to, to make it profitable for both promoter and artist management and booking agents and for everyone. Could you actually walk us through time? Because now I'm, I'm kind of curious about kind of the stages of ups and downs that a lot of your focus markets have gone through since the beginning of 2020. Could you kind of walk us through from maybe like a very like bird's eye level view kind of and this whatever you're most comfortable talking about, whether it's it's Russia, Europe or South Korea, can you kind of walk us through January 2020 and all the kind of ups and downs your industry has gone through from your perspective? Since oh man, <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, it's 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 a great question. Actually, I I don't want it to become like a bad joke, you know. Uh, but it's like with grief and loss, like those five stages, you know, yep. denial and isolation, <laughs> and then like depression, acceptance. I think we are like stage five acceptance right now. But looking back at January. Uh, January and February, I guess, because in January, no one actually believed that something's going to happen uh, with European markets or with American markets. Actually, everyone's going to 
just, you know, just joke about it. And the whole January, from my perspective, was with these band, being on tour with these Korean prominent rock band, Day6, from a big management company. And, and we've been on tour, like 10 shows in Europe, all over Europe, including Russia. Um, like four buses, like five trucks, something like that. And when we started getting those kind of news from, from, from China, we actually, you know, were first joking about it. Because we are in Europe. We are on tour. We are selling tickets. We are just doing 4K capacities or 5,000 uh, tickets sold in, in, in these like main venues in uh, Europe. And then I, I remember like 24th, 25th, something like that of January, late Jan, the management person comes to me and, and she says, Sophie, you know, we just need, we just need to, to operate it well because, because we are scared, you know, we, we need to do something for health, um, like safety for fans and for artists, definitely. And this is when we started looking for like liters, I'm not joking, of sanitizer and masks. And at that point, there was a slight panic, but we still were, you know, okay, we're going to do this because we, we had massive VIP like meet and greets. It's up to 1000 people in one, in one space, okay. just, you know, doing these, uh, high thing with artists, like saying hi, in, in like, you know, close, uh, reach. And then we actually mastered it to three cities, all people just look with masks and sanitizer. And we've been just announcing, hey, please use your sanitizer, free sanitizer, put a mask. We are really like, you know, careful with the, with the health right now for everyone. And late January, um, South Korea, I guess, closed the borders and Russia closes the borders with China. And that was a, a, a bell, you know, a ring bell that, that, that it's, it's a no joke. It's like a lot of people dying. And then it it kinda it kinda just in January, I guess January and then February. February was like so so uh, it all happened in February actually, not not in late Jan. And then in March, as I'd remember, we had a huge upcoming band ATs uh traveling to to Europe for these uh, sold out show, uh sold out tour like of seven shows or something like that, like Wembley sold out and Mercedes-Benz Arena sold out. And we never made it because they, the band flew in March and they had to fly back to South Korea because we never knew if they can make it if, if we just asked them to stay a little bit longer. And then the band Everglow, again, like a huge upcoming uh, rookie band, uh, they are on tour in the US. And they never played the last show LA because we had to cancel the last show of the tour and to fly them back to Korea. Because at that point, the US authorities, they just said, okay, guys, if you do not fly right now, you, you are not making it for, we don't know for how long. So you stay with us. Um, so this is what started happening in, in like Jan, February and March. In March, we are all doomed, all done, everything closed, and panic, like just a massive panic. And it was the same in Europe, same in Russia, same in South Korea, because, you know, with these network of promoters calling each other, we've been calling each other each morning, you know, asking like, hey, so, 
so what is going on like in the UK? Oh, okay, so what's going on in Russia? So when can we fly and stuff like that? No one believed. No one believed it, it's actually happening. And it was happening. And then, you know, April, just lockdown everywhere. Uh, except except South Korea, because in South Korea, they kind of invented these super high quality tracking system. I guess each phone is like still being tracked. And then it kind of allowed to, to, to keep restaurants and bars open. So at least people had some sort of a normal social life, right? Uh, but Europe, Russia, CIS, just quarantine, just lockdown, just these 100 meters walks to the closest store, something like that. Yeah. And now it's an acceptance stage. You know, we're just waiting. Everyone's just waiting for the news to come. So I wanted to transition a little bit to um, streaming and live ticket sales. But first, uh, I mean, since you are based in Moscow, I wanted to get a sense of the Russian market because Russia sort of stands as this nexus of the East and the West. And I'm wondering what effect does this have on the way that the Russian music industry operates and why is there this, at least from the West, there's this impression of like isolation and is that valid in the way it operates? Mm, it's, a, it's actually a very interesting question. Uh, Russian market is indeed a little bit, a little bit, um, you call it isolated, probably it, it can be called isolated. First language barrier, definitely. We need to, we need to understand that basically local artists and um, like live music market is is huge with local Russian artists or like CIS uh, artists, again, like Belarusian artists and Ukrainian as well. Um, definitely that's, uh, that's the, the, the main portion of all the live music uh, touring and uh, streaming, whatever happening in, in Russia. Uh, but then some genres, it, it, like Russian market is really interesting in terms of some genres, foreign artists it'd be, or local artists, some genres are blooming. Let's say um, some hip hop artists in Russia are bigger than somewhere in Europe, let's say, and definitely bigger than than in Asian markets. Um, may it be China, may it be South Korea, or um, you, you, you name it. Um, some genres are just, you know, ridiculously small. Let's say um, some blues artists, like blues rock artists, can can sell an arena or uh, at least like a 4K capacity or 5K capacity theaters or clubs in, in Europe. Let's say these artists that I work with uh, closely uh, for Russian markets, Beth Hart, she's huge in the US and then she she's huge in Europe. She's doing like Ziggo Dome in the Netherlands. And in Russia, it's been six years that I'm growing her up from 1,000 capacity to like 4,000 capacity. Because like the blues rock thing, like the blues and jazz, blues rock is not that huge. Why? We don't know. It's, it's just like sometimes in Russia, we see some genres being huge, being big, some genres being not. Like country music, definitely not going to be any, any, anyhow huge anyhow big like nothing like that but some bands let's say metal bands like hardcore bands can can see the biggest market here like in russia the biggest in the world for them so it's really not that predictable 
it depends a lot on 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 these like trends going on for the music genres yeah trending um something like that hmm. and so obviously spotify recently launched in russia and 12 yeah, other eastern european countries what effect has this had if any and do you think it will that spotify will be able to compete with local services like vk and yandex um great question actually everyone you know when 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 spotify launched here in 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 russia and ukraine and stuff my facebook was just you know celebrating the fact everyone was so 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 happy with that but i do understand that my my facebook list of friends is mostly from music industry right so people were actually happy to see these worldwide uh definitely great service um for the mainstream audience, I wouldn't say that everyone was that happy just because mm. we, we have Apple Music for a long time, right? And we have VK, as you mentioned, Yandex Music. Uh, Yandex is our like sort of Google, right? Um, so we, we had um, many options, but Spotify made it uh, to Russia and definitely it, it's just it's just, you know, a wider choice. Uh, for people right now, if you want Spotify, you use Spotify. It's just, it's just like I'm pleased to know that I have Spotify in Russia and I can switch from Apple Music if I want to. Yeah, I'm sorry, I use Apple Music. Mm. Yeah, but no drastic difference. If if you ask me, no drastic difference for any music genre or for any particular artist. Um, but their PR campaigns are pretty like stunning, you know. Like, of course. Vi- visually, yeah, it looks good. Yeah. Um, so speaking of streaming, we have it on pretty good authority that there can be quite a bit of discrepancy between how well an artist performs on streaming platforms or or social media. Um, So those metrics versus how many people actually come to their shows or how many tickets they actually end up selling. And I guess I was curious, um, based on your work with My Music Taste, how would you go about measuring this correlation and closing the gap if there is one? Oh, that's the best question, I guess. Uh, I, I, I guess it's exactly how I met Jason, right? Because I was the annoying one to, to, to kind of just email Jason and ask him, hey, let's do some, you know, some research on, on like these correlation between um, probably streaming data ticket sales, like what are your thoughts on this? And this is how we actually yeah, know each other. Um, basically, good question. And uh, the first example that I do remember, because it was so um, interesting, let's say, it wasn't that fun and, and that interesting for a promoter actually, but I do remember Desposito author, I guess Louis Fonsi, right? Louis Fonsi coming to Moscow uh, to a big um, venue of 7K or 8K capacity and selling around 800 tickets. So I was like, okay. Wow. It's all you need to know about streaming versus ticket sales, right? <laughs> like billions views and, and ticket sales. Or or think Tekashi69. I love the boy. I mean, he, he's like music videos, like huge. But imagine if he sells as many tickets as his music videos are getting views. It's it's crazy, but it's not happening. And it's, I think, not going to happen because, again, there is a correlation, definitely, but it's not that you can 
throughout these coefficient of, okay, there's a million views and these tickets sold. Um, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And um, actually, I, I came to these like lame conclusions of mine. Again, it's all like playing with data, right? It's kind of mainstream versus non-mainstream genres problem, if you ask me. Um, I mean, my music taste is pretty eclectic. And when I was a kid, I attended dozens of metal shows. And those, you know, black metal and death metal and symphon metal, whatever. I think I knew all the metal heads of my city, a big city. So these small subgenres create sort of a community. And those communities are um, better predictable. And you can play with numbers and try to find correlations between streaming and ticket sales. Mm. And it's impossible in bigger genres, such as like hip hop, pop. Um, like those are numbers that you mostly just guess still operating all the tools that we have, um, data tools that you can imagine, plus good old gut feeling. Uh, I mean, let's, let's imagine something as complex as Eminem's show in London, let's say. We definitely can take a look at streaming data for Eminem in, in London and the UK, but um, if we try to predict uh, based on only streaming numbers, how many people are gonna gonna attend Eminem's show? That's gonna be crazy, right? We just know that he's gonna sell two nights or like four nights in a biggest stadium ever there, like biggest venue that that we can find, and that's it. And how is that predictable? I mean, it's data plus gut feeling because it's already mainstream and it's not that easily kind of predictable and countable. My music tastes your live company that produce your own content and own your own data so but you use crowdsourcing to help point you in the right direction in terms of getting the right act in the right venue or city at the right time for those not familiar with this dynamic could you elaborate on it a little more oh yeah sure definitely i spent uh, four years in my music taste uh and um yeah, it's indeed a data-driven concept promoter, which is pretty unique, I guess, for live music industry, uh, definitely, because there was a statement from the beginning that it is a data-driven concept promoter. So basically, that confused a lot of people, like booking agents, uh, you know, management companies. All the time, they kept asking, okay, guys, what does that mean? For us, it meant that we... Um, are the most interested in a fact where the fans are of these given act. And uh, it's a correlation causation um, like issue. Sometimes we own our data because we produce shows and then we produce shows to get data. So it's, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a very complex um, process. So basically for us, it's um, how the process looks like. We have an artist, right? Uh, in mind, and then a digital campaign to get more responses on this particular act, artist. And then we have these votes analysis, um, like uh, a whole floor, like 15 plus data scientists, like those smart guys, you know, <laughs> Jason, hi to you. <laughs> those smart Not guys. Not at all. Not at oh, all. Oh, yeah. Oh, You're yeah. teaching us right now. <laughs> they kind of, those dudes, like I, I've been always afraid of them, you know. Um, I, I just went always to, to, to my fourth floor in, in Korea, in Seoul, in our building, because if I go second floor, those dudes are super like smart. So I just 
like our biz dev team, we just ask them for analysis of those votes. Um, and they just, you know, took that data, the most important data on like countries, cities, trending cities, and how many people voted. Um, and then we, we usually built routing based on that knowledge and then tour, bam. So options, we had two options. Option one, we know an act is already big, growing, and we check the platform, My Music Taste, and we see which cities are trending. So there we go. And then option two, we check the platform to see if anything shows signs of a trending act, like next big thing. And we start eyeing that act and asking people to vote. How we've been asking people? It's uh, uh, definitely digital, um, just digital like uh, ads, marketing. Um, it's pretty organic for those people who knew about My Music Taste already. So, you know, friends invite friends. Hey, My Music Taste is a platform where you can go uh, pick your artist, select your city, and then uh, tell the price that you're willing to pay for these or that artist, and bam, send your vote. And um, for that vote process, voting process, we called it taste making. So all the people who voted on My Music Taste, those called tastemakers. And um, the biggest um, the biggest perk that benefit that you get from being a tastemaker is first you you get a promo code for these uh, pre-sale of two days where you are the fan you made it work you made these or that act to come to your city so we call you tastemaker you participated you have a chance to buy tickets earlier than you know just like other people, just audience. And then we gave with each uh, unique promo code, we've been giving a 10% discount on two tickets. So basically being a tastemaker uh, gave you some sort of benefits. First, you get tickets earlier and then you, you, you have a small discount, which is kind of still a good thing. Uh, from those um, second floor super smart guys perspective and our business dev perspective, right? We, we knew more about where we can go with our artist, with our act to make a show successful for both us, our side as a promoter's side, and then the management artist's side and fans. Because a good show is, is where everyone's happy. Like just a packed place, crowded place, management's happy, artists happy, we are happy, fans are happy. That's kind of the the main confidence. Um, yeah, this is this is actually how we how we used to work with it. And MMT had a um, has a stable history with K-pop fans, but also we targeted those younger audiences from other genres like hip hop, definitely like R and B. Um, I mean, you 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 just name it, like just some new genres keep popping up, and and those fans kept coming to us and kept showing us these trends inside the platform. The funny thing is, um, one of the, the funny uh, cases that I remember clearly, it was two years ago, I guess. And I've been just like, you know, looking through Periscope platform, um, what's happening with uh, trending Western artists. And then I, I, I noticed that there is this girl trending in Istanbul, in Turkey, in Moscow, and uh, in, in Korea, in, in Busan city and Seoul city. I was like, who's that? And that was Billie Eilish, 
actually. Mm. So I just went to 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 my uh, to my colleague and I was like, "Hey, can we try to boot this act?" And he's like, "Who's that?" I'm like, "I don't know, but she's cool. She's probably cool." And I checked like her like earliest you know releases, and I was like, "Okay, we just need to wait, you know, because we don't know these artists." In a few months, she was like that big. Then when I when I reached out to the booking agent of Billie Eilish at that moment, he was like. Uh, guys, she's like the biggest rising star. Good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that that's that's the data issue, and this is this is how we how we used to work with with this before COVID. Yeah. How music charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com, and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>